From the stuff your mother never told you to the stuff your doctor never learned, On Health is what happens when a midwife plus a Yale-trained MD shares about all things women's health, from periods to menopause, sex to reproductive health politics, motherhood to mental health. Join me for taboo-busting conversations that demystify and destigmatize our bodies, all while bridging the gap between conventional medicine and wellness. Along the way, we'll be exploring the science and wisdom of how our bodies work, what makes us well, what gets in the way, and how we can live our best lives on our terms. When it comes to women's health and well-being, there's nothing we won't talk about. The new medicine for women is here. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to On Health. I'm so excited to be here with you. I hope you had a great week off. Perhaps you got some downtime to welcome early summer. I've taken a week off. It was our first week off from the podcast in a year. And I am so excited to say we are celebrating our one-year anniversary of this show, which we kicked off the very week that Roe was being overturned with an incredible episode with Julie Kay and Katie Cuthbert around their book, Controlling Women. And we have had some incredible guests in the year since. We have had Loretta Ross, Lisa Moscone, and Ellen Pompeo, just to name a few, covering topics like justice in healthcare and women and brain health and access and equity. We've also had so many episodes with other incredible guests, as well as the episodes that I know that you love, where I'm sharing my downloads, my brain dumps, and my ideas and thoughts and experiences and research on a whole wide variety of women's health topics. And of course, we're picking that back up today with part two, 10 birth control myths and realities you should really know. I'm excited to also share that when you listen to this episode, I'm going to be in Paris for my first time. I'm incredibly excited. I'm going on a mom-daughter trip with my eldest girl, who's 35 and an incredible young woman. And for those of you who have several kids or even maybe one or two kids, when you're raising your kids, you're often at the stage in your life where you're also building your income, building your career. And we don't always have resources during those years as we didn't to take bigger trips with our kids. So we did a lot of camping, a lot of traveling around the country by car And I'm just so excited to have this time with my girl in a beautiful and wonderful place. So I hope that when you're listening to some of these episodes, you're also enjoying getting out there in the world. You know, I find that travel is perhaps one of the things for me that has become almost like a non-negotiable annual way to reset. Because when I go places, especially other countries, then I remember a variety of different things depending on where I'm traveling. Sometimes it's just very simply how much I actually have. The other is often how intense and busy our way of life is here in the U.S. and that it's not the same way everywhere. People value time differently. I remember being on a trip in the Amalfi Coast in a town called Ravello, And I was having lunch with some friends and there was another couple at this communal table. And the other couple asked one of the hosts of the restaurant, 
what time the bank was open. And she, an Italian woman said, well, it's closed now for lunch and then it's open, but only from about two to three forty-five, and then it closes for the day. And it was kind of like, that's what the culture was like. So it's good, especially for me as a fairly high intensity, high performing perfectionist to remember it's really healthy to pause. So if you're curious about some of my adventures while I'm traveling, we're going to be in Paris for a few days. Then we're actually going to Tuscany for a week, again, a place I have not been to. And so I will be sharing my adventures, hopefully no misadventures in my Instagram feed over at Dr. Viva Ram. So in our last episode together, I talked about a number of important myths and realities about the pill. And perhaps the ones that really rise to the top to me are those that have to do with depression and also the pill's impact on our cortisol response, our ability to respond to stress, amongst other things that I talked about, which of course are also critically important, like risk of blood clots and breast cancer risk, some of which is more or less concerning depending on individual risk factors. But I'll tell you, those risks of the pill and depression and cognitive changes, and especially in our teens, really strike me as so poignant, especially when so many women struggle with depression and mood disorders and think there's something wrong with them or they're on medications when it's actually their current or past use of the pill that may have altered, at least thankfully in a healable way, their moods and their ability to respond to stress. So Something to think about if you haven't listened to that episode, please feel free to listen to this one first and then go back to that one or hit pause, go to that one and then pick up here. So we cover the first four of 10 myths in part one, and I'm going to pick up now with number five, myth or reality, the pill may cause autoimmune and inflammatory conditions. Autoimmune disease, which has been on the rise in recent decades due to a variety of factors associated with modern day living poor nutrition, stress, and myriad environmental exposures affects nearly 28.5 million Americans. Of these, 80% are women. Autoimmune conditions are a leading cause of discomfort, worry, and affect quality of life and can ultimately cause significant disability. It's thought that the X chromosome, in combination with hormonal changes we experience throughout our lives, explain why women are at significantly increased risk. Given the relationship between hormonal changes and autoimmune conditions, it's reasonable to ask whether using hormonal contraception contributes to our risk of developing autoimmune conditions. And indeed, some studies have suggested that using oral contraceptives is associated with increased risk of developing certain autoimmune and inflammatory diseases, including Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, systemic lupus, and interstitial cystitis. A large 2013 study of over 200,000 women enrolled in the Nurses' Health Study found that current pill users had nearly three times the risk of Crohn's disease as women who had never used an oral contraceptive. The risk increased with longer duration on the pill and decreased once women stopped using it. In fact, the researchers concluded, beyond smoking, perhaps the most consistent environmental risk factor for Crohn's disease is the use of oral contraceptives. Researchers think oral contraceptives may affect immune-mediated 
conditions in a few potential ways. For one thing, oral contraceptives lead to changes in sex hormones, increasing estrogen and sex hormone binding globulin while decreasing testosterone. And we know sex hormones and their regulation play important direct roles in the regulation of the immune system. That's one theory for why women generally have higher rates of autoimmune diseases compared to men and why these conditions sometimes appear or relapse or remit triggered by hormonal conditions like pregnancy, postpartum, or menopause. Oral contraceptives may also directly affect the immune system through their effect on the gut microbiome. Changes in the gut microbiome may play a key role not only in inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's, but in many autoimmune conditions, as well as affecting mental health through the brain-gut axis. But researchers are just beginning to study how oral contraceptives impact the microbiome. Recent small studies have shown that oral contraceptives shift the composition of certain gut bacteria and change microbiome pathways in specific ways. On the other hand, oral contraceptive use seems to have no effect on other autoimmune diseases. In fact, some evidence points to a protective effect on some, like rheumatoid arthritis, for unclear reasons, but probably due to protective effects of estrogen on joints and inflammation. The bottom line is that given the prevalence and impact of autoimmune conditions in women's lives, I always prefer to minimize risk factors, particularly if you already have an autoimmune condition or if you have a family history or other personal risk factors for developing one. If a non-hormonal form of contraception is just as agreeable to you, consider that. If you have a hormonal or gynecologic condition and can find alternative solutions to the pill, that might be preferable. But overall, the risk does remain low for most women. If you do start hormonal contraception and begin having symptoms suggestive of autoimmune disease like fatigue or pain, speak with your medical provider and discontinue the hormonal contraceptive. This may be enough to halt the progression of any nascent changes or put a condition which has developed in relationship to being on a hormonal contraceptive into remission. Number six, myth or reality, the pill depletes your nutrients. Research dating back to the 70s has suggested that taking oral contraceptives can deplete several important vitamins and minerals. According to a 2013 review, the key ones are folic acid, vitamins B2, B6, and B12, vitamin C, vitamin E, magnesium, selenium, and zinc. This research is mostly based on studies showing that women taking oral contraceptives have lower levels of these vitamins and minerals than those not on the pill. However, it's not entirely clear whether this preceded the use of the pill or whether there are confounding dietary or absorption factors contributing to lower specific nutrient status in those women. In fact, the most recent 2021 Centers for Disease Control NHANES study found that many women of childbearing and menopausal age, the same age for women to be on the pill, are chronically low in these nutrients. In my clinical opinion, taking a multivitamin is a low-risk daily habit. So I encourage all women taking the pill 
and using other forms of hormonal contraception to take a women's multi daily, both while on the pill and also for a minimum of three months after discontinuing it or using a prenatal vitamin, particularly one with methylfolate, if you're planning to conceive in the months after discontinuing oral contraceptive use. This is really important because not getting enough folic acid is a risk factor for your baby developing neural tube defects. It may also affect cognition and brain development. And one older study found that oral contraceptive users had lower serum levels of folate, and it took three months for their levels to return to baseline after stopping using an oral contraceptive. Interestingly, researchers have speculated that some of oral contraceptives' side effects and risks could actually be caused by vitamin and mineral depletion. For example, the cardiovascular risk that women have on oral contraceptives may actually be due to low levels of vitamins E and C, which play important roles in cardiovascular health as antioxidants. As I mentioned in the previous episode, mood effects that some women experience could be due to depletion of B vitamins, zinc, or other of these nutrients. So supplementation to maintain sufficient nutrient levels may actually help protect against some of the pill's side effects and long-term risks. Number seven, myth or reality, the pill interferes with bone growth. Whether the pill impacts your bone growth and density may not be at the top of your concerns. You may have never even considered this before, but bone growth in our teens impacts whether we achieve our full height and bone health throughout our lives is critical for preventing osteoporosis and fractures, either of which can occur at any age and create enormous health risks as we age and can have a significant impact on our quality of life and our ability to live independently and our longevity. It's been well established that the Depo-Provera injection causes a loss of bone mineral density, which is recovered after stopping it. But the pill's effects on bone health have been more controversial. In adult premenopausal women, oral contraceptive use appears to have no effect or even to benefit bone health. A review of 13 studies in women over age 30 using varying low-dose combined oral contraceptives, so they have estrogen and progestins, reported a positive effect in nine studies and no effect in four studies. And this makes sense given the bone protective effects of estrogen. However, studies in teens indicate that oral contraceptive use in adolescence can compromise bone mineral acquisition, especially in the first few years after their first period. A 2019 meta-analysis of nine studies found that adolescents on combined hormonal contraceptives had significantly less spinal bone mineral density accrual during a two-year period compared with those teens not using them. Why the effect in adolescence but not in adulthood? Estrogen decreases bone turnover, and estrogen therapy is actually beneficial for bone health in menopause when women are gradually losing bone. But the story is different in adolescence when the skeleton is still actively growing. In this stage of development, in order to grow, bone is continually turning over. The fact that estrogen suppresses bone turnover at this age is a bad thing. And not getting optimal bone mineral density in adolescence can increase the risk of osteoporosis and fractures later in life. 
nearly half of peak bone mass is acquired in adolescence, usually by age 18. This suppression of bone growth appears to be a problem with estrogen-containing oral contraceptives at a wide range of doses. And unlike with the depot shot, it's unclear if these changes are fully reversible. One study found that teens who'd taken oral contraceptives continued to have smaller gains in spinal bone mineral density than teens even two years after stopping it compared to those who had never taken it. It should be noted, however, that it's not clear whether the short-term changes in bone mineral density seen in teens on oral contraceptives actually increase their fracture risk later in life. A 2015 review of 14 observational studies comparing fracture rates in women who had used oral contraceptives to non-users found no association between combined oral contraceptive use and fracture risk overall. However, subgroups of women with 10 or more prescriptions or those on combined oral contraceptives for more than 10 years, which is actually really common as I've talked about, did have an increased risk. And as a 2020 review pointed out, it's an open question whether that holds for those who began using hormonal contraceptives as teens. What's the takeaway? As women, we need to be more mindful of nutrition, exercise, reducing alcohol intake, and other factors, including many medications that we might be put on, and even high levels of chronic stress that all might interfere with optimal bone growth and bone density. We also need a great deal more research about the impact of hormonal contraceptives in teens, a point I highlighted in my recent podcast, Did the Pill Ruin My Fertility?, as the only age group in which the pill may impact long-term fertility is in teens who started it when they were younger than 16. Number eight, myth or reality. The pill causes weight gain and blood sugar problems. When it comes to the pill, one of the biggest concerns women express is whether it will cause weight gain. A 2016 study that explored the barriers to contraceptive use among a diverse group of U.S. teens found this was a concern for them, too. The study found that weight gain was the most common worry they expressed about hormonal contraception. And there's no doubt that many women do experience some weight gain on the pill. Yet as common as it is for women to report having gained some weight when starting the pill, studies have failed to reveal significant effects on body weight from the pill. A 2014 Cochrane review concluded that there wasn't enough data to determine whether the pill causes weight gain or not, but they didn't see a large effect. A second review of progestin-only contraceptives concluded that they were associated with an average weight gain of up to about 4.5 pounds in the first year, but noted that most of the studies were low quality. There seems to be somewhat stronger evidence that contraceptive injections do cause weight gain. In a 2010 study that followed teens for four to five years, they found that those using birth control injections gained an average of over 13 pounds compared to average increases of five pounds in the combined oral contraceptive group and six pounds in those who didn't use contraception or who had discontinued it. It should be noted that these reviews didn't conclude that these methods definitively don't cause some weight gain. The evidence was just that it isn't strong enough to say either way. The main problem with the research on this topic is that very few studies have included a control group of women who are not taking hormonal contraceptives, which is important since it's common for people to naturally gain weight over time, regardless of their contraceptive method. 
Another weakness is that in many studies, a large proportion of women have dropped out of the study or discontinued the method by the end of the study. If those women have gone off because of unwanted side effects like, um, say, weight gain, then the study would underestimate the effect on weight. It's the same as the healthy user bias I mentioned in the last episode when it comes to mood effects. The people who do stay on the pill tend to be those who don't experience significant side effects. And of course, just because we haven't seen a large effect on average in studies doesn't mean individual women don't experience weight gain due to hormonal contraception. It's likely that some women gain weight on the pill, while others may not, and others may in fact lose weight. As with all side effects, for reasons we don't understand, subsets of users may respond differently. There may also be a disconnect between what researchers and women define as substantial weight gain. For some women, gaining five pounds may feel significant. It has been well established for decades that combined oral contraceptives do negatively impact lipid and carbohydrate metabolism. Combined oral contraceptives raise serum triglycerides with an average of 25 milligrams per deciliter after six months of use. They increase plasma insulin and glucose levels and reduce insulin sensitivity. For example, in a 2008 study in African-American women, using low-dose oral contraception was associated with increased insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, and elevated triglycerides, all markers of cardiovascular risk. Older forms of combined oral contraceptives also tended to impact HDL and LDL cholesterol levels, though newer low-dose pills don't seem to have as much of an effect on those. According to most guidelines, these metabolic changes are thought to be not that significant for healthy women. A 2013 study concluded that there is no consistent evidence to suggest that combined oral contraceptive use significantly increases the risk of developing diabetes, even in women with a history of gestational diabetes. And while data from specific studies remains scant to date, combined oral contraceptive use has not been thought to worsen glycemic control or increase microvascular risk in women with diabetes. It's unclear whether for subgroups of women, such as those with polycystic ovary syndrome, changes in glycemic, insulin, or cholesterol parameters may be clinically significant. Thus, the risks and benefits need to be explored, and some reasonable periodic assessment of labs, like a lipid panel and a hemoglobin A1c, are not unreasonable to request. My takeaway on this is that Overall, right now, the data is reassuring that we're not facing major obvious risk of diabetes or high cholesterol from being on the pill. But I really have to raise the question, how well has this been studied? Not very well at all. And we know that as women go into menopause, our risk of cardiovascular incidence, our risk of diabetes, our risk of hyperlipidemia, high cholesterol, which contribute to cardiovascular disease, significantly goes up. In fact, by menopause, our risk is the same as men for a heart attack, for example. And we know that these risks, like diseases like diabetes and high cholesterol, contribute to that. They also contribute to dementia. So I don't feel like it's enough to say not significant risk. And I'm kind of doing air quotes here around that because any increased risk is increased risk. So we need to demand better studies on the pill and its impact on our glycemic control and our lipid levels, not just in the short run, but 
in the long run. And we need to understand more what those small increases in insulin resistance, those small increases in lipids may mean in the setting of people who already have those increased risks, who already have those increased factors, which may not be something that your doctor screens for when putting you on the pill. Myth or reality number nine, taking the pill squashes sex drive. All right, here's where we get into the juicy parts that I kind of teased at the very beginning of episode one. All of us know experientially that our sex drive increases and decreases with shifts in our hormones, whether throughout our menstrual cycles, during pregnancy and postpartum, or in menopause. So it's not a stretch to wonder about the impact of hormonal contraceptives on libido. And in fact, many women do report changes in their libido when taking the pill. So is there a relationship and what is it? Currently, official guidelines on contraceptive use do not mention the potential sexual side effects of oral contraceptives. Yet sexual side effects are a common reason many women go off the pill. In one prospective study that followed women in committed relationships who went on the pill, about one in five reported negative sexual side effects and nearly half of those discontinued it as a result. But the research into the oral contraceptive's effects on sexual function is scant, somewhat conflicting, and remains controversial. A 2016 systematic review concluded that 85% of combined oral contraceptive users reported an increase or no change in libido while on the pill. But 15% did report a decrease. And according to another 2017 review of the research, overall, most studies indicate that women who use oral contraceptive pills have decreased sexual desire and libido. Most studies have been observational, and these trials can easily be biased by a number of confounding factors. But there have been some randomized control trials too. A 2016 study found that ratings of sexual desire, arousal, and pleasure were significantly reduced in the oral contraceptive group compared to the placebo group. Another Swedish randomized control trial found a small decrease in sexual interest among pill users, though the difference was quite small. Also of note when it comes to your sex life, some studies point to a higher risk of something called vulvar vestibulitis, which causes pain during penetrative sex and that's among pill users, and it's a risk that seems to be higher when oral contraceptives are used first at young ages and also increases the longer you're on the pill. The bottom line is that you know your body. If you start taking any medication that affects your libido, it's important to weigh the pros, cons, and alternatives and make the best decision for your medical and personal needs. Remember, something that is suppressing your libido is doing it because it's suppressing your normal hormonal cycles. You're not getting that ovulatory surge and you may have some blunted response to other cues as I'm about to talk about. Some women may be more troubled by decreased libido than others. So for some women, the trade-off may be worth it. It's like, look, this is really helping me with my cystic acne. So I'm going to figure out the libido thing later. Some women also find that their libido is connected to other aspects of their lives, like there's a connection they find that between their sexual energy 
and creative energy. So it's important to look at how libido might be impacting you in other and bigger ways in your life. As with any side effects, your medical provider should listen to you and believe you when you report one, including this one, even though the medical literature is conflicting. And your provider should help you find solutions that work for you. All right, while we're on the topic of the pill and sex, let's talk about myth or reality number 10. The pill affects mate selection and attraction. Research suggesting that the pill could affect mate selection and long-term satisfaction in romantic relationships first hit the media a few years ago, and it spread like wildfire as clickbait across social media. And I played you one of those clips in the first part of the episode. The story goes like this. The type of mate we're attracted to while on the pill is different than one we might be attracted to if not under that hormonal influence. So that if we meet and marry or enter a long-term relationship with a partner while on the pill, upon discontinuation of the pill, we might wake up and wonder why that person is in our bed at all, let alone why you're even with them. Now, this sounds like the stuff that sensational clickbait is made of. Could it possibly be true? Well, we know that our sexual desire does actually shift across our menstrual cycles. We're much more horny around ovulation. It's nature's way of trying to get us to have sex to reproduce. During the ovulatory phase, when estrogen levels are high and we're most fertile, we actually also, in studies that have looked at it, and these studies have only been done to my knowledge in heterosexual couples or heterosexual women, women tend to have a stronger preference for men with quote unquote more masculine features, things like a strong jawline or a deep voice, which we tend to associate subconsciously with higher testosterone levels. The same data suggests we're more attracted to bad boy types during this phase of our cycle. The evolutionary psychology theory here is that these characteristics are a cue of good genetic quality, which is, evolutionarily speaking, the important criteria women subconsciously look for during their fertile phase. On the other hand, during less fertile periods, women may prioritize non-genetic qualities that make a good long-term partner. Things like loyalty, commitment, generosity, kindness, evidence that someone might make a good committed dad and provider. So what happens when women are on the pill and don't get this mid-cycle estrogen surge, but rather are in a pill-induced hormonal steady state? Some small studies have suggested that women using oral contraceptives show weaker preferences for masculine-looking men than do women not on oral contraceptives. For example, in one 2013 study, researchers had straight women use a computer program to manipulate the appearance of a male face to create the face of their ideal romantic partner once before they went on the pill and then again a few months later. Kind of an interesting study, right? After being on the pill, their ideal male face became significantly less masculine. The researchers also compared the facial features of the real-life partners of women who'd started their relationships while on the pill versus those who weren't on hormonal contraception when they started their relationship and concluded that the women on the pill had chosen partners with less masculine faces. There are similar findings when it comes to genetic similarity. Naturally cycling women tend to be more attracted to partners who are genetically dissimilar when it comes to a set of genes involved in immune response. 
the idea that mating with someone who is genetically dissimilar maximizes the immunity of your offspring. In a 2008 study, researchers had women smell the used t-shirts of different men and then asked, based on this smell, how much would you like this man as a long-term partner? They found that while women are usually attracted to the scent of men who were genetically different from them, women on the pill were attracted to the scent of men who are more genetically similar. So this is really important, right? It's showing that the pill may actually be overriding a really important evolutionary genetic reproductive mechanism that keeps the immune systems of our offspring more robust. An implication of this theory is that if a woman chooses her partner while she's on the pill and then eventually goes off it, she may no longer find herself as attracted to them. And indeed, there are plenty of anecdotal reports of women experiencing this. Of course, there are plenty of anecdotal reports of women who just aren't attracted to their partners after a few years and certainly after menopause. So, okay, let's dig into this a little deeper. There's some data behind this. In a 2014 study, researchers surveyed couples and found that women's sexual satisfaction was highest when their current hormonal contraceptive use matched what it was when they first got together with their partner. In other words, women who were most sexually satisfied if they were on the pill when they first started their relationship and were currently on the pill, or alternatively, they weren't on the pill when they first met and currently weren't on it. This congruency between past and current contraceptive use didn't affect women's satisfaction with non-sexual aspects of their relationship, and it didn't impact their male partner's satisfaction at all. It was just that if they were on the pill and still on the pill, their satisfaction was higher than if they were on it and then had gone off it. These studies have been wildly and widely covered in the media with sensational headlines like the pill makes women pick bad mates. But the data is more complicated than that. After all, there's obviously much more to a successful long-term relationship than whether you think your partner's scent is super sexy. Another 2012 study found that women who had met their partner while using an oral contraceptive were less satisfied with the sexual aspects of their relationship. But on the other hand, those women were more satisfied with the non-sexual aspects of their relationship, their partner's provision of financial resources, faithfulness and loyalty, intelligence and ambition. They had longer relationships and were less likely to separate. This theory has been influential and also controversial. Critics have pointed out that most of the studies showing variation in attraction across the menstrual cycle to begin with have been small and usually relied on women's self-report of where they were in their cycle. Plus, studies looking at the effect of the pill have yielded contradictory results. Some of these small studies have found that women using oral contraceptives reported stronger preferences for masculine male faces than women not on oral contraceptives. And in the last few years, larger, higher quality studies that have directly measured women's hormone levels have seriously called into question the whole idea. In one 2018 study, the largest at the time to tackle the question, researchers repeatedly tested over 500 women's salivary hormone levels and concluded that there was no evidence that women's preferences for masculine male faces varied according to their hormonal levels or whether or not they were on the pill. Then a 2019 study, which surveyed over 6,000 heterosexual women, again, found no evidence that women using oral contraceptives 
had weaker preferences for male facial masculinity than did women not using oral contraceptives. All right, so now you can stop looking at your partner with the stink eye wondering, am I still attracted to them now that I'm not on the pill? What's the take home? Well, this is a big complicated area and the data is still evolving. I think it's incredibly important for us to make relationship and mate decisions in conscious and highly considered ways that take a lot of different information into account. Attraction is obviously important, as is a partner being able to be a great parent and provider, whether or not you're going to have children, but particularly if you plan to. Relationships are complex, and I can say as someone who's been in one for 42 years, they can go through tremendous, sometimes seismic shifts over time, and more so the longer the relationship. Our needs, desires, expectations, and our hormones also shift over time. So, Should you find yourself experiencing less satisfaction in your relationship? Sure, it's possible that it's due to the pill or some change in status of you being on the pill that's different than when you first got together with your partner. But it could also be natural evolution and change over time. Should you go off the pill before or while dating when getting serious with someone? If this research worries you, then yeah, maybe so. But I think there's much more to mate selection and relationship than whether we met our partner on the pill. And that if the pill is something you want or need to continue to use, I don't think the research suggests that you should stop it or vet your potential long-term mate based on whether you're on the pill or not. When it comes to same-sex marriages, the data is just not there. So all of these big questions and controversies and myths I brought up may raise one really big question for you. Should you take the pill? Should you stay on the pill? Should you go off the pill? It's clear that we need much more research and funding toward developing new and truly innovative contraceptive methods that really meet women's needs for safety, effectiveness, affordability, and convenience. Despite their differences, all hormonal contraceptives are basically just versions of the same synthetic hormones we've been using for decades to prevent pregnancy. When it comes to hormonal contraception, There's no one answer for all women. So my goal is to provide the information that helps you make the best choices for your body, your needs, and your lifestyle. Not to inspire fear or suggest that women should never use the pill or other hormonal contraceptives, nor to give them the automatic green light for everyone either. There's no doubt that the medical community has long downplayed and dismissed women's experiences of pill and other hormonal contraceptive side effects and has even minimized medical research findings. So it's really important not to assume that just because something's been around for a long time, it's completely safe, nor that that's simply true because a doctor or other healthcare provider says it's so. Similarly, not all the information that's coming from the women's hormonal and wellness space is accurate. While some of it truly does come from citizen scientists trying to shed light on risks, much of it's based on exaggerated claims, cherry-picking data, limited understanding of the medical literature, and clickbait and fear-mongering to sell books, courses, and supplements. And it's very hard to separate fact from fiction or sort expert from exploiter. I do prescribe hormonal contraceptives in my practice when needed for medical reasons or when it's a woman's preferred choice for contraception. For many women with hormonal symptoms or gynecologic conditions, these can feel like small miracles. They can be helpful, effective, and convenient. 
And for women seeking birth control without the work of having to check basal body temperature, cervical mucus, or watch the calendar or an app, the pill, patch, or IUD or ring may be the easiest option. So no, it's not necessary for every woman to avoid or stop using hormonal contraceptives. There are women, however, for whom certain forms of hormonal contraception, and particularly the pill, are not recommended or are even contraindicated for safety reasons. The risks depend on whether the oral contraceptive is estrogen or progestin-containing or both. These are especially important to understand before you start taking an oral contraceptive and also if you've been on one, because many doctors neglect to do the screening before prescribing them, so you might not be on one that's best or safest for you. So when it comes to estrogen-containing contraceptive pills, these are not recommended for women with the following risk factors. Age over 35 and smoking, more or equal to 15 cigarettes a day. If you have two or more risk factors for arterial cardiovascular disease, for example, older age, smoking, diabetes, or hypertension. If you have hypertension just by itself, this is a contraindication. If you have a history of venous thromboembolism, women with a history of thromboembolism not receiving anticoagulation, or women who have an acute embolic event should not be taking estrogen-containing contraception. Known thrombogenic mutations, so if you have factor V-laden or another clotting disorder which increases your clotting risks. Known ischemic heart disease, history of stroke, complicated valvular heart disease like pulmonary hypertension, risk for atrial fibrillation or history of subacute bacterial endocarditis, breast cancer, cirrhosis, migraine with aura, hepatocellular adenoma or malignant hepatoma. For progestin-only containing contraceptive pills, these are contraindicated for women with the following risk factors, known or suspected breast cancer, undiagnosed abnormal uterine bleeding, benign or malignant liver tumors, severe cirrhosis, or acute liver disease. There are also warning signs for all of us to be aware of for anyone who's on the pill or if your daughter's on the pill. You should seek medical care if you experience any of the following. Sharp chest pain, coughing of blood, or sudden shortness of breath, which can indicate a possible clot in the lungs. Pain in the calf, indicating a possible clot in the leg that can travel to the lungs. Crushing chest pain or heaviness in the chest, indicating a possible heart attack. Sudden severe headache or vomiting, dizziness or fainting, disturbances of vision or speech, weakness or numbness in an arm or leg, indicating a possible stroke. Sudden partial or complete loss of vision, indicating a possible clot in the eye. Breast lumps, indicating possible breast cancer or fibrocystic breast disease. And you want to ask your doctor or healthcare provider to show you how to examine your breasts and how often, if you do have very cystic breasts, you need to be screened if you're on the pill. Severe pain or tenderness in the stomach or in the stomach area, indicating a possible ruptured liver tumor. Difficulty in sleeping, weakness or lack of energy, fatigue or change in mood, indicating possible severe depression. And finally, jaundice or yellowing of the skin or eyeballs 
accompanied frequently by fever, fatigue, loss of appetite, dark-colored urine, or light-colored brown bowel movements, indicating possible liver problems. I'm also not a fan of women being put on the pill for any reason and simply being left on it indefinitely. There really is no zero-consequence pharmaceutical that I can think of, and I feel it's important to periodically reflect on whether the symptoms or condition for which it was started on initially is still present and whether it's still the best treatment of choice, especially after a year or so of being on it, and certainly every few years. If you want to be able to revisit that list of contraindications and risk factors, you don't have to hold those on your head, by the way. I always have an accompanying article for you over at my website, avivaram.com. So if you go to avivaram.com and just search 10 Pill Myths and Realities, you'll find part one and part two. You can bookmark it, you can save it, you can share it so that other women in your life know about this. Maybe your daughter, if you have one, won't listen to you or your sister or mother for that matter, won't listen to you. But if they see it coming from an MD and they feel a sense of interest and trust, they'll listen and or read as well. So head over to vivaram.com. And again, you'll find all this information, links to all the many, many scientific studies I've cited, and also the data. So you can always return to it anytime you need to. If you are ready to stop using oral contraceptives, whether due to side effects, concerns, or personal preferences, there are non-hormonal contraception alternatives, including condoms and the copper IUD. And there are many different options for practicing fertility awareness methods and apps that can help you do this. Also, which I talk about over in other podcasts and in my book, Hormone Intelligence, which is an amazing resource that can guide you on non-pharmaceutical methods of addressing many common concerns from acne to PMS, fibroids to PCOS, endometriosis to menopausal symptoms, all for which hormonal contraceptives, and especially the pill, are commonly prescribed. Whatever medication or device we might be considering or may already be using, it's important and even essential to be thoughtful and knowledgeable about what we're putting into our bodies, to know the risks and benefits generally and for us individually, to pay attention to side effects and have a provider who believes you. Know the benefits, know the risks, know your options. That's the heart of informed consent and that's the heart of being empowered in your healthcare. Everybody, I can't believe it's been a year since we launched On Health, and it has been an amazing year of me getting to interview some of my favorite people, people I admire, people that I love, people that I didn't know before I was interviewing them, people that I did know, and to bring you all these incredible voices of folks doing work, creating meaning, creating change in women's health. It's also been an incredible year of building content to answer the questions that you bring to me, like in the Let's Chat About It feature that I have, or just creating podcasts around the topics that you bring to me as your concerns. As we enter into the summer season, I'm going to continue bringing you amazing interviews. And as I step back a little bit to create the fall winter season of new 
podcast with me, long form solo podcast to bring you all the information you are so eager to receive and love. And as I'm preparing new guest episodes for you, I'm also going to be bringing you some oldies, but goodies, both from the last year of On Health and also from Natural MD Radio to nurture you through the summer. I hope you continue to find this podcast supportive, encouraging, a companion, letting you know you are not alone on this journey of life that can be so incredible and also challenging and perplexing at times, that you're getting the answers that you need and that you know that you can always reach me at Dr. Aviva at avivaram.com and through my socials, especially over at Dr. Aviva Ram on Instagram, where you can actually ask me questions and connect with me. And you can always also reach out to me through the Let's Chat About That phone number where you can dial in and connect with me and ask me your real life questions that you'd love for me to answer on the show. To do that, you can just call me at 413-889-4549. That's 413-889-4549. I listen to those and create podcasts around them. So thank you so much for an incredible first year of On Health. Enjoy these summer episodes coming to you. And I can't wait to see you next week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, that it helped you to feel seen and heard, and perhaps that it even brought you some aha moments. Please share the love by sharing this with a friend or someone in your life who could benefit from the kinds of things we talk about in this space. Also, make sure to follow me on Instagram at dr.avivaram and go to avivaram.com to join the conversation about the show on my blog. While you're there, you can sign up for my free newsletter with tips on taking back your health. Be sure to leave a rating and a review for the podcast and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every week. Can't wait to see you next time.